This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast for the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. And I am Zach Moore. And there have been many books written about the making of Star Trek. And there have been many books written about the making of Star Trek V. And we're going to be talking about some of them, including uh, Elizabeth Shatner's The Making of Star Trek V. And then also William Shatner's Star Trek Movie Memory. So so some behind-the-scenes insight into what many consider the worst Star Trek movie. Uh, And we're going to get into that here with our friend... Tony Black, what's up, Tony from Primitive Culture? Hi, yes, I'm I'm now uh, part of the Trek FM family with my own show with Duncan Barrett. You have been assimilated. <laughs> I've, been, I've been assimilated, yeah, officially, yeah. Um, so now it's great to be back on Standard Orbit, guys. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you aboard, Tony. I was wondering too. I mean, since um, you and Kay and we have a few other people that have been broadcasting, you know, from the UK, do you get a different contract than us Yanks here? As how does how does Chris work with you guys? Uh, we get no money. And occasionally fed. That's 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 basically it. Yeah. Oh man, that's double what we get. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know the European contracts could be a little bit more strict. So anyway, that's funny. <laughs> so getting on to our first welcome. It's the first time I've got the chance to to speak with you, and uh, I'm I'm really happy with your show, and I'm Thank and you. I'm really happy with the uh, the last episode you did with Zach. That that episode, the best of Trek, really took off. Uh, it was a great episode, and I remember I I don't know where I was in the world at that point traveling. And when I saw the topic and what you guys did, I was like, damn, that would have been perfect because <laughs> I, I I am a TOS movies. When we talk about that era, that's my favorite spot. Mm. So, but that was a that was a wonderful job and, and thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Standard Orbit 172. No, that's not it. Standard Orbit. That is certainly not <laughs> it. <laughs> oh, Zach. That was Standard Orbit 165, Star Trek at its best. Me and you know, Tony. In, in, in four months, we're going to be talking about our 200th episode. We're going to be reflective, and you'll say, what episode number was that? <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to start off talking a little bit about Elizabeth Shatner's book. You know, it's, It was called The Making of Star Trek V, as told by William Shatner to his daughter, Elizabeth. And, and Tony, I, you know, I read this when it first came out, right after the movie came out. It might have even been side by side. I don't remember uh, in 1989, but it was. I, I thought it was a really fun book. I, I'm curious as to what your first impression of the book was itself. 
Well, I mean, I I was only six, seven years old when Final Frontier came out, so I didn't read this book then. Uh, I've read it mm-hmm. nowadays, uh, and I, I I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it absolutely for all the information it gives you about Star Trek V, and it's made me look at that movie and reappreciate it maybe a little bit more actually now, knowing what's gone into it. But it's a little bit of a hagiography in terms of how it's written. You know, it's Lisbeth Shatner basically spending 200 pages telling us how great her dad is at what he does, which is <laughs> lovely in a way, but there is a, a natural level of bias that comes out. You know, it, it has that whole thing of, oh, he faced a challenge. Oh, but everyone loved him in the end. Oh, he did, he couldn't quite film that scene right. Oh, but he got there in the end. You know, <laughs> there is a little bit of that. Whereas some of the other biographies that have been done or reflections on a, on a movie are a little bit maybe a little bit more you know, honest about the fact that it perhaps didn't quite go as well as as you know was hoped i mean he, it, the, what, at the very end of the book there is a second test screening after the first test screening of the film goes badly and this and i thought for a minute i thought wow is this going to end on a little bit of like a reflective down note here that you know not everyone quite thinks final frontier is great but no the second test screening after they went away and shot things it's an it's amazing it's the best star trek movie ever and i'm sitting there right. it's 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 not Let, let's be honest for a minute it's not but so on those terms it's a very one-sided read but it was a, it was a fun read it was a nice read and it was um it, it has genuinely made me like the film a bit more which I didn't think that would ever happen, <laughs> quite honestly. <laughs> Zach, any thoughts? Well, you know, my my main focus was Star Trek Movie Memories by William Shatner. I had read his Star Trek Memories book years ago. Uh, my dad gave me his copy of the book when I was much younger, so I read that one. And then uh, not too long ago, I, as, as I often do when I was perusing half-price books, I saw, oh, look, Star Trek Movie Memories, the, the sequel book to Star Trek Memories. And I and I checked it out, and uh, it's, of course, Shatner's first-person perspective on everything, you know, post-TOS up to Generations. He wrote it during uh, the production of Generations. And, and of course, his, the chapter on Star Trek V is the longest, and he, he uh, has his typical self-indulgent stories and whatnot. And, and uh, I, don't, I don't know. I, I feel like it, it was maybe a little more honest than the other book because, I mean, it's, it's, it's years later. You know, it's a little more reflective um, as it is with his entire Star Trek career. Of course, you know, when you see, you know, in the 80s, it was the time before DVD extras and Internet videos and whatnot where you see all these cast members, like, talking up their product even even though they know it's, like, not very good. It's always amusing to go back and watch these <laughs> special features. Oh, it's going to be the best Star Trek ever. Like, like um like insurrection all the special features on that made me laugh like f mary abraham's like if i could make star trek films the rest of my life i would because it's amazing it's like really f mary abraham i don't know but at the same time it is interesting at least there is the different angles of shatner talking like in first person and then and the uh, elizabeth shatner book she's talking from her perspective so that is you know some different perspectives on it at least mm-hmm. i think what what elizabeth does well is you know, frames what's going on, asks all the right questions in terms of, you know, and my dad was feeling this way, and then he had to do this. So you're right, Tony, there was a lot of that. There's, it's an absolutely very biased, but I, I kind of appreciated what would it be like if one of my kids was to write about my day-to-day and, and, and operating something or, you know, facing the challenges or whatever. And I thought it was, it was honest there. I mean, there, was, there were a lot of challenges on this movie and you know right from the beginning when there's a writer's strike and they're trying to get things done and 
trying to convince Harv, Harv Bennett to come back and, and produce it. And, you know, it was difficult. But it is funny, at the very end of the book, you write about that. You know, it's the best movie ever. And there was a... <laughs> There was a, it, it, it's even in Leonard Nimoy's book, uh, I Am Spock, the the last one he wrote, he he mentions that when the movie first came out, Variety gave it pretty high marks, right, and sent a, I don't know what they did back then, a Western Union, <laughs> Telegram, <laughs> Telegraph, whatever they did, uh, I don't think it was an email or whatever, but he wrote something to you know congratulations on your he cut out the article or something like that. And then he kind of mentions, and that was pretty much the only positive review of Star Trek V. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Tony, that having read this book, I think when I did, because I was I was very disappointed in the movie. I, I, I got married in 89. I, I wasn't six. I can tell you that. Sorry. Sorry, Ken. Uh, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> it's, it's a common theme here on Standard Orbit. And... Um, <laughs> And and I remember coming back from I was in Bermuda, coming back from Bermuda, and being really pumped to go see the movie and in Sard. And I was, you know, the the credits go and everything. I don't remember where I was uh, for any of the other movies really the first time I saw them, other than the motion picture because I was a lot younger and that was my first one. But for that, I remember and just all the hype about you know uh, seat belts are being installed in the on the seats. <laughs> See that and, poster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it really had you jacked up. I mean, it was like, yeah, we're gonna. This is gonna be a great movie, and you know, I, I just remember watching it and just like, I cannot believe. You know, I think it was mostly just the special effects, not not just kind of the uh, the plot itself. And I was just like, wow, this is. This is awful. I mean, and I was I was very down about this movie, and I think because I was taking such this high level, I can't wait. I'm so pumped. Star Trek Four was awesome. We had TNG started by then. This is going to be so complimentary, and it just wasn't where I thought it was going to be. And then, like you, you step back, you read some of the books, you see it a few more times. It's still not a great movie at all, but it 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 got better as time went on. But it's still not good, I guess, is how I would frame it. I, th- I think it's it's interesting because, I mean, I rewatched. I've not finished rewatching it yet. It's still paused on my TV, but I rewatched <laughs> some of it today, and it's been a long time since I watched it last because I don't revisit it very often. Um, but you know, I, I I find myself enjoying a lot of the pointless stuff in a way all the stuff with the campfire and the marshmallows and all the cliff stuff and yosemite that's lovely that's just those guys comfortably having a a, a laugh you know shatner devotes a fair amount of time to them just you know goofing around and things like that that's that's great but i think it's one of those things where everyone talks about you know a director's vision for a film and they talk about how it's important for a director to have a vision and and things like this and to have a set goal i think not enough people turn around to william shatner and said really really <laughs> you know about this film are you sure are you sure i mean and and let's face it having read this book there were lots of things that he wanted to do with the final frontier that in the end were either cut for budgetary reasons or cut for time reasons or all kinds of things or simply for the fact that they couldn't achieve it you know and he wanted a dante's inferno level of you know on the nose we're going to genuinely meet god as in god the god no no ambiguity ambiguity god his his level of ambition was you know significant and i think he uh it, the problem in the end was that 
there was no way he was ever going to be able to really reach that and do that. And I think one of the nicest things about the book I, I, I felt, and one of the things that engendered me towards the production of the film, is that he does have this, you know, I mean, he's not, he's not the most modest guy in the world. We all know that. He's, he's great, but he's not the most modest. But he does have that realisation of what is in my head is not necessarily going to end up on the screen. And I would say that on the whole, that, that was a good thing in many ways. But then because of that, and because of production factors and not everything, it ended up being a film that didn't work because it was a little bit misconceived in the first place. And and it's interesting because if you read between the lines, quite a few of the cast weren't sure either. You know, Leonard Nimoy had significant reservations about what goes on with Spark and Cybok and all this. <laughs> what made me laugh in the interviews at the end was that James Doohan went, yeah, I didn't like the script at first at all. <laughs> but then I read it, we did the script read and it was okay. You know, he's quite honest about it. Yeah, I didn't like it. So I think a lot of them were a bit like, this isn't as good, is it? But we'll go with it because we've been doing it for 20 years. So I, I, I think there was a real level of, if this wasn't William Shatner, if it wasn't a crew who'd been around for 20 years, if there wasn't this level of, you know, love and, you know, strength in the in the, the property, I think most people would have turned around and go, we're not giving you $30 million to make that. No way. Yeah, well, they, they did significantly rewrite it. And uh, I think you make a really good point about how the cast felt about the script. Obviously, both um, DeForest Kelly and Leonard Nimoy were not happy at all. And there were significant rewrites to make them happy. And I found it interesting that there weren't many or any rewrites at all for the cast because most of the... Um, the rest of the actors, the rest of the team, didn't like the idea of betraying the, the captain. And they all said at one point, even in their own books, that's not who we are. And that was where I think Leonard Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy where William Shatner consistently misses things, is the lens that he looks at the show, it's the big three with these other folks. And in more recent times, he has opened that aperture a little bit more, and he, he understands and appreciates it better but he never got it. He just he just, when they were making the show and when they were making the movies, you know, these were just and those were the way things really truly were for most movies and sets and TV shows. If you were an ancillary character, that's what you were. Um, and he never really understood or got the amount of love and appreciation that they all received from the fans and that people were rooting for them too. I, I just think that was. I think it's an it's an easy thing to miss especially in that era, because it's the only show of its kind that was like that. And it's probably, other than a few other shows, that's just how Star Trek um, works. You know, usually you don't have seven main cast members, right? It's just, it's just not that common, especially back then. And so when he put this together, uh, the rest of the team felt very alienated. As time went on and they read things, like, I remember Walter Koenig was like, I've got a pretty good role. I mean, it was for them, it was screen time as well. And, and Koenig had fairly decent screen time. Uh, Scotty had fairly decent screen time. The rest of them, not so much. And the whole Scotty Ahura thing, neither one of them got that either. You know, they didn't know where that was coming from. It was really <laughs> so, weird. It was, it was very <laughs> weird. Really weird. Nemo understood the ensemble aspect. Like He, he did. T- introduced it in Star Trek Three, and then really came to fruition in Star Trek Four, where everybody had their little little mission to go do on earth mm. in the past and you know you look at star trek 5 as far as the 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 above the line and the below the line people go can i know you love to use that, that <laughs> phrase that's, talking that's shatner's line <laughs> that was what he used to use yeah i mean you, you see uhura gets her 
fan dance. Um, Scotty, Scotty does have a lot to do fixing the ship, you know, and then of course running into a bulkhead because slapstick is always great. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, Chekhov does get to sit in the center chair, which was a first for him. You know, uh, 25 years in, he gets the captain's chair once. Uh, I don't think Chekhov ever had the con in the original series, and he certainly didn't in the movies. He did in the motion picture. Uh, he did? Yeah. Did he, did he get to sit in the captain's it's, chair? He did. But it's it's funny. It's in his book. Perhaps that was in the special longer version. It, 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 it probably that. is. It's not. It, did, it didn't make it, but in his book um, that, that he wrote. Um, oh, about, about the making a motion picture. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. He was all excited about him having the con. Sulu gets his whole... Uh, you know, actually, it's my first attempt. So, with <laughs> landing the shuttle in the shuttle bay, so everybody had something to do. Uh, so, give him credit there, I guess. And and, and to your point, yeah, I I agree. Uh, Shatner, of course, made it all about Kirk, and he was like, everyone turned against me, but I am not going to be corrupted. You know, <laughs> and I, I agree. I'm glad that the Nemo and Kelly fought to like, no, we're gonna. If it's all about you know our friendship, then we need to be the thing that doesn't break. You know. Uh, and keeping keeping the three of them together, because I and then you know I get his whole idea was oh there's we're going to be at each other's at odds with each other, and then the the, the strife when we get to the planet at the end uh, is going to bring us back together. And, and I understand that thematically, if this was like you know some story about characters we never met before, then that's one thing. But we had spent twenty plus years with these guys, and and I think the fans and the actors understood all that much better than Shatner did. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I think as well, yeah, it, it's interesting how Leonard Nimoy, when he's questioned by Elizabeth Shatner, would you do another one? He says, no, I've done two now, That that's enough. But something, I, I just wonder what what it would have looked like had he had the situation been reversed and Leonard Nimoy had, had made a film with a completely clear slate. Because obviously, as, as we know, Star Trek Three came off the back of Wrath of Khan, so there was a storyline that had to be you know told. It was, the, it was the part two of a trilogy. And then The Voyage Home... You know, they had a lot of choice about where they went with that. You know, they didn't have to necessarily go back in time and with the whales and things like that. But there was still unresolved plot threads at the end of, you know, number three. There was no enterprise, et cetera, et cetera, that they had to deal with. So it was still a sort of a continuing story. But Shatner here gets free reign. You know, by the end of the voyage home, everything's the status quo has been reset. He's just got a demotion. You know, they're all back together. They've got a new ship. They can go anywhere and anything they want to do. So... That's part of the problem in a way, in that Shatner maybe would have been forced to make something a little bit more by committee and by ensemble had he been telling part two or part three of a trilogy, essentially. Whereas now he can do what he wants, and in the end he decides to sort of tap into that ultimate kind of, you know, in some respects, egotistical journey of, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to do the biggest thing in the world. I'm going to find God. I'm going to have Star Trek find God. And I can't imagine Leonard Nimoy w- would have done that. You know, I I would have been very surprised, and I don't think he would have done it at all. I think he'd have gone, no, because I I, I he didn't he had people like Nick Meyer working with him. You know, who really understands how to how to create something ge- genuinely interesting with you know different shades and things like that, and and genuine humor. And the humor in Star Trek Five is funny, but it's only funny really if you're invested in these characters. You know, the, there's a lot of warmth to the film. There's a lot of you know joy and friendliness in the film, but it, it you have to buy into them. You know, whereas certain of the other films that are better written and have a better script and a better story, you don't necessarily you, they will make you fall in love with them. I don't think Final, Final Frontier would make you fall in love with Star Trek because it's too it's too much of a William Shatner Star Trek <laughs> than Star Trek itself. 
And I think that has always been a little bit of the problem with it, to be honest. Yeah, it's true. He really does become, this is where it becomes, there's more Shatner and yeah. Kirk than ever before here. And then when he gets to Star Trek Six, Nick Meyer and Leonard Nimoy's creative control kind of pulls it back. And Six is one of his best performances. And they get to Generations, it's like, it's like 80% Shatner, 20% yeah. <laughs> Kirk at that point. But think of how different, you know, the Undiscovered Country is. I mean, you, you couldn't you couldn't get two more different films, you know, one after the other than The Final Frontier and The Undiscovered Country. You know, they are, they, are, they are light years away from each other in terms of every part of it. And that's that's amazing, really. That doesn't happen very often in a long-running series. Well, it, it, to Shatner's credit, though, he did ask Nick Meyer to be a part of it, but he, Nick yeah. Meyer was busy on another film. He did. So it's like, well, he, at least he understood. Like, hey, this, I don't understand Star Trek, but this guy does. Let me ask him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, he wasn't available. Uh, and I, I do wonder That's what true. Nick Meyer would have done with this story, like if presented with this story, because it, as you said, it's very antithetical to what he has did in 6 and then what he did in 2 and 4. And uh, I mean, it would have been, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know how much, if Meyer had come onto the film, I, I, I wonder how, how much Shatner would have given you know, and not trusted mm. this guy because he was proven success already in Star Trek. So he might have deferred to him more than anybody else, just because, of course, Shatter he wanted to do well. You know, I mean, this is this is. I mean, if you know, let's all let's, we all know that how big his ego is. Of course, he wanted his Star Trek home to do well. He wanted to set himself, <laughs> set himself up for success. So I think he would have listened to to people who had been successful, uh, and a guy like Nick Meyer. So maybe, but I I think he did, and here, I, I think there's a couple of things that we might be overlooking a bit. Mm-hmm. Star Trek up until through Star Trek Four, they were the only game in town. Uh, and in Star Trek Four was the most successful box office Star Trek. So here it is. He has his opportunity. He could have, and by contract, should have been directing Star Trek Four. But he was busy with T.J. Hooker. He was busy with other things. He could not do it. So this was the first movie he could direct, and he's following up to the biggest, most successful, most commercially acceptable Star Trek across the board. So this was loved beyond Star Trek. The other Star Trek films were not. They were all loved by the fans. They weren't. They, they weren't. You know, a lot of things outside of our family there that that got the attention. Star Trek '09 and Star Trek IV were the big movies that brought in a big audience, right? And so he's got that. That's one. Two. You've got the next generation now that's that's in its second or third season. Uh, probably I think it was in its third by then, and it was starting to really get its footing and and come a long way. So he, I'm sure, it, there's there's a lot to this where it's like, how do I make something that can top the most successful movie we've had, plus a big TV show, integrate their sets and thought processes, right? And he did. That Klingon element came from the TNG piece, right? The the beginnings of the friendship type of thing. That's what that whole end of the movie was about, right? Was trying to show a little bit of... Uh, a little nod towards the next generation, because obviously they hadn't come up with the final frontier at that point. So... From from what I've read and what they were trying to put together, they needed something epic. And like a lot of smart people do, they asked the question, what were the elements that made Star Trek IV so successful? What are the elements that are making this successful? And they even talk about it. They wrote them down. You know, they loved the um, the comedy. They loved the the big plot line, right? The You, you could argue that Star Trek IV... Even though it was very much in the background, there was a strong ecological message to it, right? And they wanted to have that strong message for Star Trek V, and so he went big, right? Even though 
Roddenberry had been trying to pitch in Thy Image forever, <laughs> the original movie, about going and finding God, and everybody thought it was way out of scope, including Shatner, which made it so strange that when they were coming together to make this one, he wanted it big, and everything in it was big. Even the, the, um, the battle at, at Paradise City was supposed to be incredible. I mean, if you look at the movie poster, right, you've got, you know, if, if they had CGI developed the way they have it now, it would be like Lord of the Rings epic as far as the amount of soldiers and people coming in to fight this this city that they built. And back then it was all practical. So everything was cut down, cut down, cut down. And his vision was cut down, cut down. And then, you know, when it was like, ah, you can't go find God. That's too controversial. Do this. It's like, yeah, okay, it'll be the false God. Well, how many times have we seen that in Star Trek? And even he was exasperated by that. He didn't think it was risky enough, but he went along with it. So I think they were looking for something truly, you know, gone with the wind, right? And they they just didn't wind up anywhere close to that to that epic Star Wars type big movie. They wound up with, you know, a quarter of that. And I I love the the risk taking. I love the out of the box thinking. I love trying to capture all those elements. I understood and, and appreciate the pressure they were under. And it just it's just so it's just too bad that it failed on so many levels. If ILM could have made this movie, it would not be the junk show I think a lot of us think it is too. Because as much as there was comedy in the movie, the effects and everything around it were so bad, it just pulled you right out of it. And because the story wasn't as strong with the characters as we like in a lot of places, by that point we got used to being Star Trek having first rate special effects. It wasn't like we could go back to the TV show and just watch it for the characters. We just couldn't. So I just I just want to make sure that we, we kind of capture what they were up against in trying to make this movie because it's not lost on me what they were trying to do. They just didn't pull it off. Yeah, and, and you know what? That, that, that's one, that is one of the things that came out of the book for me in a big way. It was that the, there was a lot of soul-searching done. You know, there, was, there were a lot of... You know, real there's a real ambition on Shatner's part, which I which I genuinely admired. You know, he really wants to go out there and get some of these amazing shots. You know, he wants to get this this beautiful shot of you know Cybok on a horse that that's coming steadily towards the camera. And it's a great that opening scene. I think is really good. You know, the way it's shot is really great. You know, the music works well with it. You know, the, the the sense of mystery and enigma and you know portent. You know, he had he had good ideas. You know, he did have some good ideas. He had things he wanted. to I mean, he even went off and climbed. For real, like a, a hundred foot mountain, you know, apart in order to try and get into the, you know, the mode of when he's, you know, ends up just climbing like a, basically a fake wall for the purposes of the movie, so he wasn't in any danger. But you know, he really committed to want to, wanting to create something that was very distinct, and I, I admire that, and and I and I think that you know all the detail that Elizabeth Shatner goes into in in terms of the production, in terms of on location and things like that, really. It really makes you look at the film when you watch it then in a different way and you're going, oh, okay, well, that's what they built, that's what they did, they had to film there, you know, this is where... So it's great to watch it again from that perspective because you do get... A, you do have a, I do have a real admiration for it, much as I think it's really misconceived and I think the ambition was just too much. I mean, how, it, it, how, how can you possibly quantify what God is definitively in Star Trek? You know, or, or in 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 many things, you know, it's it's such a it's such a concept that is fraught with, as you said, Ken, risk. But but it, it's it's almost impossible to do. You know, it's an impossible challenge 
that he was trying to do. And I think... Well, risk is our business. Type. Risk. <laughs> exactly. Which is why I admire him for it. But I I think that it was... It, it, it was there was there was not enough people just to to necessarily be there at the very beginning to say are we sure we want to go down this road in the first place do we not want to do something that's a little bit more you know in tune with what star trek is 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 about because I, I don't know if finding god is really what star trek is about although the amount of times that they found gods on planets in the original series maybe i'm wrong maybe that is Gene Roddenberry's reaction to this was interesting as well because he wasn't sure about a lot of stuff either. So, you know, there's, there's different ways to think about it. Well, to, to respond to what both of you guys have been saying here, first of all, at this point, Gene Roddenberry hated everything yeah. <laughs> as, far, as far as the movies yeah. went. And, you know, and and uh, it, it's tough because, I mean, he created Star Trek and his one shot was motion picture. And then after that, like, okay, Gene, we're taking away the keys, <laughs> you know. He's he's like the he's like the the old guy who can't drive anymore. And he got to take the keys away, and he's mad at you. But it's for its own good, you know. Uh, but uh, but the, all that to say, I mean, he hated six too. So like as you said, Tony, five is over here. Six is on the opposite mm. end of the spectrum, and he hated them both. So what are you gonna do, right? Um, <laughs> to the special effects, everybody talks about special effects. I know Ken, you talk about it a lot, and and I think uh, yes, better special effects would have helped. But uh, I, I think Shatner focuses. And on that, too, again, Shatner missing the point uh, because he always wanted to do his director's cut, which I would have loved to see, you know, because when the DVD special editions were coming out, they did the motion picture director's edition. He's like, oh, great. I want to do one, too. And they didn't they didn't give him the money to do it. I, I think that definitely would have helped. Uh, and also like a re-edit, maybe clean some things up, edit some things out and you know, reshuffle some things. Just our general retooling of, of the existing material. The, I mean, there have been there have been other fan edits and whatnot, which I would recommend to people go go search those one called In Thy Image, which actually cut Star Trek five down into a like an hour long pilot if it were to launch the uh, hypothetical Star Trek phase two, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, so ch- go check that out, guys. Seek it out on the Internet. It's very good. But uh, even if the special effects were better, you know, there's a lot of other things that are missed. But but to your point, Tony, I, I I think I think five is like the most original series, like of all the movies. If you look at what they're doing, it's it's got Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and they're they're this movie focuses on them more than any other movie. Uh, that the the triangle of them, the tri- trifecta, the triumulative. Everybody uses those different terminologies for for their friendship. <laughs> Triad. Um, Try, there you go. Perfect. Anything with try, try force. Um, okay. Not quite, but and then you got a crazy guy that hijacks the Enterprise to go find God, right? I mean, that's that's pretty standard TOS mm. stuff, right there. You know, it's actually a lot like a like a lot like another great Star Trek moment, the way to Eden, right? I just think five, like it's just a run of the mill season three episode fit fit right in there, you know, with the rest of them. So, uh, and we talked about that in our episode, Tony. Some the mm. refreshing thing about this is all the Star Trek movies are so different, you know? And that's very refreshing, uh, and I feel like something that, that failed the franchise later on. You get into the TNG era, and then, you know, the the Kelvin timeline era. Like, everything is Rathacon. Everything is like, okay, well, that worked. Let's use this formula. We have to stick to this. Uh, and probably maybe they're more gun-shy because they look at, like, well, we tried to go out of the box a couple of times with the motion picture in Star Trek V, and... A lot of people don't like those. So let's just let's just keep trying to replicate Star Trek two, you know. And so that that's unfortunate. Yeah. And it's 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 like when you see movies like, um, you know, original people complain about there being 
uh, too many sequels, too many remakes these days. Not enough risks are being taken. But you look at what the most successful films are, and it's it's sequels and remakes. Mm-hmm. You know, original ideas they often just fall flat and they aren't appreciated. You look at movies like you know Tomorrowland or something like that, or yeah. a completely original concept, right? And but nobody goes to see it, and they're like, okay, hey, where's Transformers Five? And you're like, oh, mm-hmm. come, on, come on, yeah. So it's it's that it's that give and take there, and to kind of final response to what you guys were saying there uh Shatter, he had a he had an artistic eye it was this is not a boring like looking tv made for you know made for tv movie that they just put on the big screen you know um and i i would argue that there's a there's a better artistic vision for this film than even like star trek 2 because star trek 2 is it's a brilliant film but it, it, it's it's very flat at times it is very kind of just not as cinematic as you might have hoped, you know, a lot of that was the budget. Ironically, Star Trek Five had a bigger budget than any of the films up to this point, and it, it still didn't come through in the in the final in the final product. Yet things were cut here and there, but that has to do with, unfortunately, uh, they're making ILM is making Indiana Jones, Ghostbusters Two is happening, so all of the uh, the big special effects houses are, are are focused on other things, and so any so and the writer strike, as you said, so it's just like oh my gosh, and then and then Shattered, he, he's even got crew people that that aren't that aren't showing up and doing things for him in the desert so they have yeah. to go like he has to run in a truck <laughs> to make his down, next shot yeah. <laughs> so i mean it's it's crazy man and the, the you know there were lots of instances like that you know described in the book where they were up against it you know, in terms of time you know they nearly went five days over you know the shooting schedule you know that would have increased the budget you know and he's desperately worried about you know getting it finished on time getting all the shots he wants to get and some of them he doesn't need to get some of them he's being a bit too you know, overzealous about, or he, he he's trying too hard. And there are times when, you know, people like Half Bennett have to sit him down and say, stop pushing everyone to the limit because you don't need to. There are certain other things you can do. But they were hampered by various things. You know, at, at times they were hampered by the weather. At times they were hampered by, you know, the Teamsters Union strike as well, where they didn't have the, the drivers who, you know, could go out there and sort of read between the lines based on their production, you know, history working in this business. You know, they had untested people doing things that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So, you know, there were challenges, definitely. Like, I'm sure there are challenges on making most movies, really. But, and and on the whole, he he rolled with them pretty well to make a film that, you know... I mean, the thing is, the thing to remember, I suppose, with Final Frontier is that it's not a terrible movie if if you take it away from Star Trek, really. You know, it, it's it's probably the the least effective Star Trek movie because most Star Trek movies are really good, you know, in their own, in genuinely only really good, you know, on the whole. Whereas... If you would take this away from the franchise, it'd be perfectly fine. You know, it's a perfectly fine movie. It's not badly badly put together, even if the special effects are a bit dodgy. You know, he doesn't direct it badly necessarily at all. It's just, it just has certain fundamental issues. One of which is the script. You know, there's there's no getting away from the fact the script has some serious problems with it. Um, and well, do do you guys think if they had stuck to his original story idea, it would have been better? Or do you agree with all the the input from everybody that okay let's let's get away from that and let's do this instead and that kind of compromised yeah there's compromises all around i guess this is yeah. the biggest problem right i mean so, so <laughs> well you know knowing shatner right he has a um he has a huge fear of death he really does he's he's talked about it on different shows and when he's interviewed i mean he's what is he's 86 and 87 and he's defying everything he possibly can right <laughs> i mean he's got he's he's remarkable for his age how much energy he has how um how sharp he is all those things and 
this was just me taking a lot out of what he was writing. He's still trying to figure it all out. And it even comes out, you know, at the end of the movie, it's like, maybe God's right here in the human heart, which, you know, on its face doesn't seem that controversial, but it's kind of a controversial statement. It's, I'm not saying it's wrong or right. It's just, he's, he's dealing with this in his head. And I think it's one of those things. There are a lot of people too, as you get older, that, that you're, 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 your perspectives changed. And so I think when he was writing this all out about finding God or whatever, it was almost a, uh, a metaphor for his own journey, which is very incomplete. So I think that um, if they went with the original concept or whatever, I don't know if it would have been a better movie, especially if they were still stuck with all the challenges that they had. It would have been more controversial. It would have been interesting. But I um, but I don't think a lot of people would have would have bought off on... You know, uh, Spock going the other way, McCoy going the other way. Um, they handled it okay with the cast, but not great. They didn't like it. I just think they probably made a decent movie with what they had. His, vi- you know, I, I was going back to what you were saying, Tony. Here's a first time director of a motion picture. He's done TV, very different animal, very different budget, very different scale. And there's a thousand people that are on the set every day with you for a year or whatever it takes to make it who can kind of course correct you. When you're making a movie and you're doing this for the first time, it's it's an awful lot to chew. And, and I get, like I said, I give him credit for his vision and his ambition. But he needed a Star Trek three. He needed something smaller, I yeah. think, more contained. And then if he wanted to take on something as epic as he was trying to do with Star Trek V, and he had the right effects house, and he had Nick Meyer, and he had all that, I'm sure he could have put together a heck of a movie. And just like Gene Roddenberry, right, you, you get one shot. And I think it made money. It was profitable. It was the lowest one at the time. And even a lot of people at Star Trek within it, um, Harv Bennett and others, didn't necessarily blame the plot or the poor effects for its box office. He blamed it a lot on other movies that were out in that time in 89, and he also blamed it on the fact that you had the next generation out there, and he felt like people were getting plenty of Star Trek. So it was dilutive, which was an interesting thing to say as well. I, I You wonder if there wasn't a TNG would in in because usually Star Trek, you know, it's people going back to see it over and over and over again because you're not going to see anything for two or three years. Did that have something to do with it as well? So I don't know. To your original question, Zach, I think if the original concept has gone through, it probably would have been a bit more controversial. But given all the other elements that it had, it probably would have wound up in the same spot. Well, I like I like what you said there, Ken, about uh, you know something smaller because there was no margin for error. <laughs> for this kind of story like like it, either everything works and you have a great epic movie or stuff doesn't start to work stuff starts to fall apart as it did here unfortunately and this epic movie has to get shrunken down and it doesn't work shrunken down and has to still be epic so that, that the compromise is really what destroys it. just start small and then get big from there and there was just there was no margin for error here I, I think i think what well, yeah you're right you're absolutely right that that's that's precisely it and i think what would have happened had he had his complete original vision and the money and all these kind of things is that he would have made a film of ideas, but he wouldn't have made a film that really resonated beyond that. And I think one of the things that probably came out of the fact he had to shrink things down and he had to alter was the fact that it maybe came down a little bit more to character, you know, and that's one thing, you know, in many respects, you can't fault the final frontier for it. It has plenty of character, it has plenty of heart in those three, you know, as you, as we've talked about, 
the rest of the cast were a bit frustrated because they barely got anything to do. In many, and then all of them are suddenly brainwashed by Cybok and you know spend most of the movie in a trance essentially. And it's it's only the, the main three who are doing anything and driving the plot in a way. But it's but I think Shatner's if you if you read all the stuff with him and David Lowry coming up with the script, coming up with the ideas, it was he had he didn't have in his head a story so much for Kirk and Spock and McCoy as he did a story of wanting to explore these grand themes about heaven and hell and God and, you know, and where we fit in that and going to this, you know, planet at the centre. I mean, he wanted to go to the centre of the universe until somebody pointed out that doesn't exist, Bill, (laughs) right? There is no centre of the universe because the universe is always expanding and moving. You know, so he had these grand grand ideas that are you know it would even a tolkien would struggle to necessarily get across you know um and i i think it's just one of those things where what he didn't understand in the way that maybe someone like nimoy did or or nick meyer or the the guys before him did is that the best star trek movies always come from a point of where what happens to these people throughout this plot you know where do we get to you know with with the next, with the undiscovered country for example you know, and with Wrath of Khan, they are thematically similar because they're all about Kirk going on this journey of of understanding. Whether it's in Star Trek Two, he's understanding how to deal with growing older and where he fits. And then in Star Trek Six, it's about coming to terms with the death of his son and and his anger with that. You know, there are he un, he understands Nick Meyer how to get Kirk from A to B in that sense. Whereas in the Final Frontier. I think in the end, Shatner ended up getting there a little bit more, but the message isn't as clear. You know that those story, those character stories aren't as clear in the Final Frontier, and that was one of the things that Nemo and DeForest Kelly and everyone had issues with. You know, they were like, "Well, surely we've resolved a lot of this stuff. Surely they've got past this. Surely, what? Why are we? Why are we dealing with that?" And I think the reason is that Shatner wanted to deal with the big themes, and he didn't always have that consistency in character for me. Sounds right. Sounds right. I- like I said, it's um, it's funny how you can, you can take this 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 one-off movie, and that's what I always considered it like a one-off. But you go back and you dive deeper into it, and you say, "Yeah, man, you know what could it have been?" And so as we look at the elements that didn't work, and I think we've we've hit on them a bit, right? The obvious ones were were the effects, but I know that doesn't drive the plot. It just it just drives your enjoyment, your visual fulfillment of the movie. And so it has a larger impact than I think people realize, but for me it really did. And then, you know, just kind of the um, the choppiness, uh, the the wanting to pull comedy into this movie and then making it more Stooge-like than natural, which I think that's where Star Trek always wins when it comes to humor, is, is the self-effacing, kind of making fun of each other, you know, good ribbing that you have, what you do with shipmates, versus, you know, a ship that has... You know, springs bouncing out of the log or, you know, toolboxes knocking over or people, you know, incompetent, you know. That was such a fundamental misunderstanding of what worked in Star Trek IV. It's like, oh, they like jokes? Let's put in jokes. Like, no, they come from the situations. It's not like, oh, look, he hit his head. Slapstick. That's right. (laughs) And and, and in in another movie, it would work. And in Star Trek, it just, it just, you know, there were a couple of times I know I was laughing and stuff or, and they tried, you know, with, you know the morse code and the stand back it, 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 they they tried it just it just you don't know a jailbreak when you see one yeah occasionally <laughs> you know it it worked and then in other cases it just didn't so i think that you know you take you take pieces of it i think tony you hit it and zach you you hit it earlier too there were some great scenes with the three of them the camp scene is fun the um mm. 
you know, sometimes Spock with just his yes, you know, <laughs> you know, I need a shower, you know, thing. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> that is funny. that is Star Trek humor to me, right? When yeah, when they kind of make fun of each other and they 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 have a um they they have that rapport and then you know it it gets a little bit off. I will say that I thought Lawrence Luckenbull did a great job for the role that yeah. he had. He yes. was very believable. I, I've never seen him in anything else, but I think he's a great actor here. I, 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 I've seen I know him. That Shatner saw him in his LBJ play, and that's what really sold him. Yeah, uh, I've seen him on different TV shows. He's he's quite the character actor. You just wouldn't recognize him a lot of times, especially mm-hmm. when he's shaven and all that stuff. But then I'll go, hey, that's Lawrence Luckenbull. So he's he did I thought a phenomenal job uh, in the role. It wasn't a great role, and this like people are trying to get their arms around with um, with Discovery and Michael, and they were trying well, what's Cybok and all this other stuff. It just you know I'm telling you, I want to see, I want to see Cybok on Discovery, man. That would yeah. tie it all together for me. All my continuity complaints would disappear love it. if they give us a Cybok <laughs> reference, but. But I, I like see he's not he's not a con he's not a because again all the TNG films like oh this guy's the next con like yeah. Rick, Rick Berman said that before every movie right but you look at Star Trek Five it's like this is this is something different he's like a he really doesn't want violence he just wants to fulfill his quest and I think uh, he's an interesting character you know he's kind of like a Soren type where it's like I'm not out to destroy the universe I'm out for just this one personal goal and I don't really care what happens in order for me to meet this goal but he doesn't have some doomsday device he's gonna kill everybody with like so many other Star Trek villains so it's Again, like Star Trek Four had no villain, uh, main villain. Like Star Trek Five didn't. Again, it didn't really have a a villain. Had an antagonist, you know. And he's kind of sympathetic too, because you can see at the end he he's very, uh, you know, he's he's very redemptive and he he gives his life at the end to save the rest of the guys because he's like, oh man, I really screwed up here. I'm sorry, you know. And it's it's a it's a good moment at the end with him and Spock, you know. And I, you know what? Honestly, I don't really mind them being brothers. You know, I saw this movie years when I was so young that I was just like, oh, Spock has a brother. Okay, I didn't watch Star Trek for twenty years. I'm like, what the hell? Spock doesn't have a brother. Yeah, <laughs> it's just something I saw when I was so young. I was like, oh, okay, Cyborg. Yeah, yeah. And Spock and and Kirk conveniently forgets that he has one or had one. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. So let's uh, let me ask the the question to you guys: Is this the worst of all the Star Trek movies? Wow, well, I I I don't know. You know, I I, I re- uh, for years I would have said yes. But I think there is more heart in this film than in something like Nemesis, to be honest. I think I think Nemesis is a film that is made... I like There are things I like in Nemesis, but I think Nemesis is a film that's made by somebody fundamentally who does not understand Star Trek whatsoever. And you can see that through every frame of yes, the yeah, film. Yes, we, yeah, we were giving Shatner a lot of crap here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, but, not Shatner doesn't understand Star Trek. Let's take a look at Stuart Baird, my yeah, friends. exactly, exactly. <laughs> Shatner does understand Star Trek, and he cares about it, and that warmth and love of it and genuine desire to make something great comes through in The Final Frontier in far, far break, broader strokes than it does in Nemesis, which feels like the epitome of that let's make the Wrath of Khan sort of sentiment. You know, people accuse the, the Into Darkness of that, but at least Into Darkness was honest about the fact it's, a, it's a, essentially a remake in some respects, whereas Nemesis wants to just be the Wrath of Khan without having earned any of it, really. And, and it's... It, it's it's just it doesn't have much in the way of soul. It's quite cold. It's quite it's quite a distancing film. So I I would say that Nemesis beats it to the punch for me in terms of in terms of being the the least engaging and an enjoyable Star Trek film. Much as the Final Frontier isn't very good as a film, I always enjoy it in its own way when I watch it. 
you know, I don't come away thinking that was terrible. I hated every minute of that. I come away thinking, oh, it's such a flawed film. But I suppose in the same way as I do whenever I watch Dune from David Lynch, you know, that that's a, that's, that's a really flawed film. But I always enjoy it, you know, because I love the book and everything like that. So, no, I don't think it is the worst. What about you, Zach? I love every Star Trek film in its own way, you know? So I'll just get that out there right now. Because it's Star Trek, right? Even when it's fill in the blank... It, oh, no, it's it, Star Trek is like fill in the blank, you know, fill in that blank whatever with whatever you want. Even when it's bad, it's good, right? So I'll say that uh, it is the weakest of the original six, you know, the original series films. Um, although I would rank it up, I actually I like Star Trek Five a lot more than most people. I would rank it, I would rank it higher than every Next Generation film other than First Contact. And then my feelings on Into Darkness go back and forth all the time because Into Darkness is such a great film for like a third. And then with every 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 third, it just it kind of drops down in quality as the film continues and becomes a, a big budget rehash of Rathacon and then a generic sci-fi action movie. So it loses some of that brilliance that it started with, frankly. Because I, I mean, like I said, the first first third is great. All that to say, I don't know. I, I would put it. I would put it at the. It's the best of the worst, if you want to use that terminology. Um, so yes, I, I would rank it before Generations, before Insurrection, before Nemesis. Into Darkness kind of goes back and forth, floating down there with me. Uh, but uh, it, it's in that general range. And, I, you know, I love it. What does God need with the starship? I mean, we'll find a more iconic line than that in those later movies, right? There's not one. That's that's part of pop culture. You can put that on T-shirts, you know? Uh, in fact, I'm going to go look that up and try to get a T-shirt that says that. Because it's just a great scene, you know? And, and there is a Star Trek message in there. You know, there is heart to it, as you said, Tony. There, there, it, has, it has that spark, which is lacking in some later star trek and what a magical time the 80s were for for movies right dune you mentioned that i mean these are crazy things that you would never see happen today or just interpretations of things that the uh, movie movies by committee would immediately shut down but in the 80s this stuff snuck through you know and star trek 5 snuck through and yeah. uh and I, you know i i enjoy it you know i it's it, it's never one of those movies you know when people say yeah when i rewatch everything i skip this one star trek 5 is not like that for me it's part of it yes you could skip over it and that the story would make sense, you know, because, you know, if you look at the original series films, two, three, and four is like the Star Trek trilogy. And then six is like the epilogue of that Star Trek trilogy. And one or five are just kind of tangential and, and these extra one-off movies. But but they still bring a lot to it. And that flavor of, of so much variety is what makes it such a strong franchise. And so, so I, I, I'm, I'm glad we have the Star Trek fives of the world to watch. So what, what, what about you, Ken? What's your, what's your take on it? I would say I'm completely aligned with what you just said. I, I don't have anything different. I, I, it's how I feel is all Star Treks. I'll watch any Star Trek movie, any of them, and I'll enjoy them to a, to a point. And it, it, it's not a, a, a anti TNG, you know, rant to go on, but their movies just other than first contact, we're not good at all. And, but I, I'll still watch them and enjoy them because I, I love those characters and, and I, and I enjoy seeing them, but you know, I, I am so bitterly disappointed. I look at Star Trek generations, the way I look at Star Trek five, they were trying to make something big and epic and they fell on their face flat blew it. I mean, it was horrible. And they were looking for as much drama as they could possibly put into a movie, and it just didn't hit. And that's the part that really bugged me about the, you know, it's like, didn't we just see Star Trek V? Didn't you see what happens when you, you know, you, you try to take something? Like, I look at it the same way. It's coming off all good things, perhaps the best Star Trek episode historically ever. It's up there. It's not mentioned a lot, but it's up there. And it's definitely probably the best series finale of them all. And... 
and they were just trying to play off it and it and it missed and it's just like to me it's like you guys didn't even see star trek 5 to get the lessons from this you know <laughs> come on you've got the same kind of character running around trying to find this quest and 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 you kill kirk the way you do it was horrible horrible and it's it's just one of those things where it's like ah but yet I'll still watch it. <laughs> I'll, still, I'll still watch it and, and, and be happy to see the Enterprise be in the beginning and, and the, the cast of TNG. So, you know, that, that's, that's where I'm at. It's the, probably the least of the original series and probably, you know, um, better than, than three out of the four or two out of the three anyway of the, of the next generation movies. And it's right with Into Darkness for me. I can watch Into Darkness and separate myself from Star Trek and then watch it and say, this has got crazy action and all this other stuff. But sometimes I can just say, you know, watch it as if you were watching Star Wars and go, yay, lots of action, things blow up, yay, you know, that type of thing. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's the worst Star Trek movie. I think it's, uh, it's, it's not a great one. Uh, but I think as we bookend this, Tony, I like that, um, the more I read about it and what they were trying to do and what they were up against, the more I appreciate what came out of it. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, th- I think that it was it was a book worth making. I, I think I, I like I like my um, making of books a little more uh, in the middle, I suppose, a little bit less, you know. Isn't this an amazing achievement by my dear old dad? But in that sense, <laughs> it has that. It has a certain uniqueness. I don't think I've really read a making of book before um, like this. In, that that really has that sort of close personal. I mean, even the the beginning of it. You know, the Lisbeth Shatner talks about her own difficult relationship with Star Trek as she grew up. You know, and her, her childhood memories. That's pretty much the introduction. That's you don't get that very often in a making of book of of a, of a movie. You know, so in that sense, it really does. Um, tell a, a, an, an interesting story about not just the movie, but about the the daughter of the man who made it as well, and the man and her relationship to the man who made it. So it has that it has that extra little element which makes it even more enjoyable, and it goes into a real level of depth about what they were up against. That when you watch the Final Frontier, you wouldn't know really that 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 level of of you know production difficulty or just all the little details that went into it. Um, and and I I defy anyone to not read this book and then come out of it feeling like they they like this movie a little bit more, even if they've always had a difficult relationship with the Final Frontier. I think if you read this and then you watch it, you will you'll appreciate the effort, even if the end result isn't quite a great Star Trek movie. So I I'm pleased I'm pleased I got to read it because I, I I'm glad I like this more now. <laughs> I really am. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, even uh, Star Trek movie memories by Shatner kind of he kind of has a disclaimer at the beginning, like, "Hey, look, guys, these are stories from that happened years ago. These are this is my perspective, you know." So uh, that it's very much a collection of anecdotes of himself from making all these Star Trek movies. So these are these are very personalized making of books we're talking. This is not some like omniscient, uh, mm. you know, the, the God's eye <laughs> narrator talking about the history of it's Star ironic. Trek. It's an ironic turn of phrase, Zach, consider it. I think that the the first chapter of Star Trek movie memories may be the best first chapter in any Shatner book I've read. You know, and he's written quite a few. Uh, you know, he, he, he's had, he has two autobiographies out there, but he has Star Trek memories, he has movie memories. He has, but that there's a part of that that really shows a lot of emotion, um, what he was up against after the series was canceled, how difficult it was for him uh, to even earn money 
um, living in the back of a pickup truck. I, I mean, it's him and, and his the juxtaposition. Dog. Yeah, yeah, the juxtaposition was like, hey, they just they flew me down to NASA. I was a special guest. It was amazing. Yeah. And like a year later, he's literally living out of the back of his truck with his dog. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like doing you doing said. like local theater. Yeah, right? it was. Play, yeah, it was parking it, in parking lots, setting up camp. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like wow. It's, so it's you really incredible. you appreciate his journey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so there's it's the insight you need into Shatner. I think that gives you because we poke fun at Shatner, but we love Shatner. You know, here on Senator Robert. like we poke a lot of fun at him. But I mean, if you if you really like, he, he's very transparent. I think, and and especially in his later years, about what he's gone through to get him from there to here, so to speak. And uh, no, nothing Star Trek related is more close to his heart than Star Trek Five, because that was that's the thing with his name on it. You know, uh, so any any kind of insight you can get into that is very fascinating, both from a Star Trek perspective, from a movie making perspective, and from a perspective of Shatter himself as a person. Yeah. So I, I can't recommend both books more. I think they're, if you're a Star Trek fan and, and you love behind the scenes stuff and you haven't read Movie Memories or you haven't read The Making of Star Trek V by Elizabeth Shatner, I think you, you'll, you'll, you'll get a lot out of it. You really will. It, it, biased or unbiased, it uh, it paints a, a very different picture and and you appreciate it more. And it's the same for all of it. I yeah, you know, because there's been a lot of making of books. Uh, one book, the only book I was really disappointed was um, Nicholas Meyer's book, A View from the Bridge. I was hoping to learn a whole bunch of new things, and it's like, not nah, it's all been covered. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, they interview him. Yeah, because they interview him all the time. They interview yeah. him all the time, and you're right. And his commentaries do capture a lot of it. It was still an interesting read. There's stuff outside of Star Trek that was fascinating, but. It was a, um, it, it was it was an okay book, but you know when you're looking for more and more and more, and it's like ah, you know th- this this was a book where it's like yep, yeah, I've read all of this or heard all of it before, but uh, the Shatner book and the Elizabeth Shatner book I think are are fun reads and um, I highly highly recommend them. Well, Ken, you did an excellent job closing the conversation there, but unfortunately I have one last thing I wanted to talk about. I'm going to mess up your entire segue. Uh, <laughs> what what did you guys think about the Rock Men? Because that is like. Shatter fixates on these. He's like always talking about the rock men in both books, you know, and 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 he explains the suit and how it was gonna like oh this it was gonna breathe fire and there was a lot of smoke was gonna come out of it and it looked great in the screen test. Then we bring it out to film it and it looked like garbage and we filmed it and I took it back to the editing bay and it looked like garbage and we had to cut it out and it was very disappointing and and he he always feels that like oh if we just would have made this rock men work we could have tied it together and you know we did get to see the rock men finally in Galaxy Quest so good for you <laughs> <laughs> but do, do you guys have any opinions on that or do you think it would have helped or at that point the movie was so far off of what the vision was it wouldn't have really mattered because that's kind of right fall on it I I was going to mention the rock man and I completely forgot I I, I think it would have been a terrible terrible idea i think it would have been up there with like darren aronofsky's noah in terms of things you go what on earth is going on (laughs) like i think i think in the end what they did actually worked better i think you know the the fact he had to compromise on you know just running away from you know an, an angry god in a beam i think he's he's better in that sense because i think a rock man would have uh, it, it, it was too much tied to originally what he wanted to do with the idea of having the Furies rising from the... You know, he wanted to make it a bit Raiders of the Lost Ark at the end, I think. He wanted, uh, you know, mm. demon... Angelic turned to demonic. Yeah. yeah, he wanted that kind of thing going on. He wanted this big, you know, Dante-level, you know, epic going on. And I think the Rockman was kind of like the, the second level down because he wanted a, a, a few Rockmen at first. And then he was like, no, you can have one Rockman, Bill. And then I think, <laughs> I think it would have just been... Everyone would have gone, what's the point of this? What's, why is there a rock man chasing Kirk? Why? Like, 
I think it would have just been really, really odd. And I think he, he was, it was better that even though they they did that, they talk about that great moment where they all had to log camera equipment up this really slippery rock face to get to the top to get a, a, a visual shot down onto what where the rock man would look. But they they couldn't get the shot because the wind kept blowing in the wrong direction for like two hours. <laughs> And all that effort they put in that meant nothing. I think in the end, it was probably for the best, <laughs> really. Yeah, I think as we said at the beginning, if there was a, if CGI was more developed and, and could have been utilized, it would have been a very different movie, right? It would have been Lord of the Rings with yeah, not only the, the army approaching Paradise City, but with hordes of rockmen pouring out of this planet. And it would have been, you know, pretty epic uh, if they could have pulled it out with you know armies of these things going back and forth, and it, it it would have been interesting to see, to say the least. But from what they produced, and I always shake my head at Hollywood, right? Because when this was being made in '87 and '88, and they talk, what was that? Well, that Rockman was like five or six hundred thousand dollars, right? If I remember right, <laughs> that one costume, right? It was just rubber. It with- was like thirty thousand or something like that, and. Oh, I thought it was more than I that. Know. I thought it was pretty significant money. Anyway, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I just remember, good God, I, I mean, the the amount of money that it costs, and, and a lot of it gets tied up. I mean, I mean, I know it's there's unions and things. I mean, costs are just so prohibitive uh, to make to make movies. Depend, you know, and that's why they make them in Georgia or Toronto or wherever they, you know, any place but California nowadays. Uh, to save money because it's so expensive, and you just you just see the numbers, and you're going, my God, it's 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 incredible uh, what it costs uh, to to make a movie. I mean, we're so used to now here, oh, 150 million, 200 million. Good God, you know what you could do with that money? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> just, it's amazing to me, you know, and especially in the world that that, that I that I work in. I mean, that's that's significant investment. Um, you know, I, a a factory that employs 400 people costs me roughly 80 million to operate a year. 400 people making medical products, and I think, oh my God, they're making a movie, and it's costing 150. It's incredible to me. But anyway, um, I went on another tangent, didn't I? Uh, I I think that your answer your, to answer your original question, if it was just the Rock Man, the way that that thing came out, it it would have been even more of a joke for the movie and. That would have taken something special to try to capture that and film it. And no, I can't. I could not see the Rockman working. Another, another brilliant attempt and another colossal failure. I think. But I would love to see that thing on display, maybe at some conventions or something. It's got to yeah, be that's around. An, where is that costume? <laughs> it's. They should put it in the Galileo in Houston. <laughs> they should. <laughs> excellent, excellent, Ken. Oh man, I just thought of one last thing too. Sean Connery, yes or no? Are you glad he was in the? Are you glad he wasn't in the movie? Or are you glad he? Are you do wish he was? That's terribly phrased, but you know what I'm trying to ask you. So, <laughs> I I need your pain. Share it with me. Share it with me. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's very good, Tony. Yeah. There's uh, nothing to add after that. It's me. It's Shybok. <laughs> I'm your brother. <laughs> we named a dog in Diana. Uh, oh, yeah, do you know what I? I I, much as you, you were right that Lawrence Luckinbill was terrific as Cybok, I would have loved it. I mean, I'm a I'm a massive Sean Connery fan, and I I just think it would have been tremendous. 
what was the movie he did in the in the late seventies where he was literally it was a science fiction but he had boots. Zardoz. 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 I, I know exactly what you're talking <laughs> yeah. about. Yeah, and I'm thinking, man, you know, he's already he, he doesn't have a lot of bad films, you know, in his <laughs> in his repertoire. A couple, and, and and all I was thinking was, if he was Cybok in that, would that have gotten people away from that other movie where he's running around essentially in boots and a speedo and a cape? And um, it was just, it was just bizarre. The whole uh, thing was bizarre. I'm just ashamed we ne- we. Uh, it's just sad we never got to hear him try and pronounce Shakari. Shakari. Oh, that would have been great. Shakari. Well, they, they, they named it that to try and get him. I'm like, what? Well, that's an odd. That's an odd way to try to get an actor. Hey, we named this planet after you. Yeah. So it's like. Yeah. So guys, <laughs> I, I, so this is you know at it, Standard Orbit, right? We're always trying to come up with new concepts, ideas, or whatever. And uh, Tony, best Sean Carnery I've ever heard. So I think what we need to do is come back. Zach and I will play every other cast member. (laughs) But you're just going to do all of Cybok's lines as Sean Connery. So we can really get a feel for that. I I would be there in a heartbeat. Oh, I think that would be a Star Trek V radio drama coming soon (laughs) from Standard Urban. Uh, Zach does a mean William Shatner, and he has even developed a lot of his mannerisms just (laughs) on the show without trying to imitate him. The the pregnant pauses and stuff. I'm going, come on, Zach! So, Ken. (laughs) Yes. What are we talking about today? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but yeah, yeah. That's great. We we have we really should do that. Uh, I think we will you know, do that. I think we will uh, definitely do that. I, I'm well up be, for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I usually and to, to have a serious answer to wrap it all up here about Connery. I I think uh, I'm actually I am glad that he wasn't in it. I feel like Star Trek has had brushes with a celebrities like Eddie Murphy was supposed to be in four. Tom Hanks supposed to be in First Contact. It all kind of didn't quite happen that way. And and I'm glad they didn't because honestly I, I feel like it would have been a little too distracting. Uh, but all things to say about Star Trek Five, at least you would have had that Sean Connery charm to kind of like pull you through. There would be more of a cult following to Five in the general public if Sean Connery had been in it. But at the same time, for, for Star Trek's sake, as much fun as we're having joking about it, I, I am glad that, uh, that he wasn't in it. So I, I would have preferred uh, I would prefer Timothy Dalton actually, but that's its own conversation. <laughs> oh, anyway, all I can say is Tony. Now you've got me fixated on what it would have been like with Sean Connery. Much more hey, so. I've I've never thought. Out of it until I until you vocalized it. Well, Ken, let, let me blow your mind and uh, let's imagine Roger Moore a cyborg. I can feel your pain. Share it with me. <laughs> I, I, I Hello, think your Sean Spock. Connery impression is a little better. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Oh yeah. boy. Well, uh, talking about the making of Star Trek Five and uh, has been fun today with you, Tony. If people want to find you out there on the internet where can they find you man okay well a couple of places uh, i'm on uh, twitter as me uh, aj black writer uh, we can find uh, various bits and bobs and writing from me um i have my x-files podcast the x-cast and x-files podcast which zach you've been on many times and you're helping me with uh, uh pod watch going through the entire um series right now so thank you for that um you can find us at the x underscore cast on twitter and uh, i also run my own entertainment website which is called set the tape which is uh, all about all kinds of you know movies television things like that you can find us at set the tape on twitter you can also hear you on primitive culture here on trick fm yeah how could i forget that one <laughs> the only thing the most important thing yes i have uh, primitive culture which is with uh, duncan barrett and uh, we talk about uh, history and culture in terms of star trek and uh, yeah you can find that on trick fm so uh, check us out well, talking about the making of Star Trek V, the many books about it, and Sean Connery as Cybok, it's not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. 
Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Fan consensus has sort of said, look, third season is terrible and awful and woeful, and a lot of it is. But you go back and you watch it, and there's a lot of it that carries over. Like, there's a lot of stuff that is, I think of, like, as quintessentially Star Trek. Um, that sort of you see develop over the course of the third season. The 602 Club. There was a lot of screaming involved. <laughs> I'll start with... <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. Snowball! 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 <laughs> yes. No, I know what you mean. No, I did a lot too. of... Oh my god! It's a Demogorgon! Warp 5. He had to learn to not interfere, and it's painful, and that's what makes it such a powerful episode, so this is definitely a see it. Okay, next. All right. All right. Sleeping dogs. While exploring a gas... Skip it. <laughs> okay. All right, so shout out to... I think we already know what this one is. <laughs> keep, keep going with the sleeping dogs. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. It's like when Tyler was, you know, explaining the situation and seeing it. And I mean, and he was explaining it to Tyler. It's like he was almost apologizing for it. Like, I had to do this to save my life. And I'm still alive because I did this. But... Is he suffering guilt for that? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm contact and look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and of course in the Babel Conference. Type Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trekfm and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron on the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, You'll find the current goals and different milestone contributions along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details on patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our great associate producers for Standard Orbit. Norman Lau, Tim Robertson, Nick Anastasio, Richard Marquez, and Corey Elrod. Yes, thank you guys so much for your support for both Standard Orbit and Trek FM. Uh, so, Ken, if people want to find you out there on the internet, where can they find you? Hey, you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference and engaging people when I, when I have the opportunity. You can also find me on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is at BostonSCPO. And we, uh, we like to tweet out all our new episode information as soon as we get it, as well as, well as our colleagues. So look for me there. 
As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. And I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman series from the early 2000s. And you can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.